0: Now, we come to uh, what is effect, my final message, and uh, will you turn with me again, please, to Matthew 16. As you know, we've been focusing very much on the verse, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'd like to read from uh, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will find it. For what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Of what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each one according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask now again for the gift of your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. During this past week, we've looked at the centrality of Christ. Christ, the Supreme One. Christ, our Saviour. Christ, our King. Christ, our Lord. And we have seen that without Christ, we are nothing. We will never be anything. He is all that we will ever need and ever hope to have, be, or ultimately achieve we've then gone on to look at building his church. And we saw that we are involved with Christ our Lord in the building of his church in this, his world. We then saw the attacks upon his church, the attacks that emanate from hell itself. And we have looked at a war, a world caught up in war, in violence, conflict, and death. But a world increasingly in which disease is rampant, when every ill that can befall humanity comes and falls upon it. And with it, the great environmental problems of our day, the hurricanes, the cyclones, the typhoons, the natural disasters, All of these come, and they assail the people of God. And we saw, too, how in our world there is a resurgence of ideologies, hostile to our faith, hostile to our Lord Jesus Christ. And in an age when the church is much abused, it is these ideologies and religions that are gaining ground. And then we saw the internal conflict within the church, the termites, so to speak, eroding the very foundations of our faith, making us seemingly powerless. So we have a church edifice, and we do not realize that the termites have attacked it, and it may well fall upon our heads. Such are the conflicts, such are the gates of hell, such are the assaults of the enemy upon us. So where do we go from here? We continue in that passage in Matthew's gospel. And I want to isolate a word, one word which I hope will not just sum up where we've come from, but take us forward where we want to be. And that word occurs Again, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Matthew sixteen twenty-four. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And that's the word I want us to focus on. The word deny. What exactly does it mean? It means literally surrender. In other words if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him or her surrender themselves to God. Let them surrender their affections, their emotions, that's what they feel. Let them surrender their bodies and their souls. Let them not seek their own happiness as the supreme object of their lives, but with willingness, renounce all to surrender, even to the point of the laying down of one's life. That's the meaning of this word, deny. If I had to express it another way, in poetic form, I think of a hymn, which no doubt we all know well, we sing, and yet one which is perhaps the most difficult of all hymns to sing. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. We sing that, do we not? Yet with what meaning? With what emotion? How do those words address our minds? How do they address our thoughts? How do they address our wills? How do they address our actions? What do they speak of in terms of who we are, what we are, where we've come from, and where we are going to be? When we sing those words, I surrender all. I would suggest to you that in this passage before us, There are three obstacles to surrendering oneself to God, despite what we have been singing. And the three that are present here in the context of the disciples come and speak to us also. The first is this. There is often a desire to strive for a life that is free from the cross to strive for a life that is free from the cross you see the cross speaks of the laying down of life it speaks of blood it speaks of tears it speaks of sacrifice here is peter the one who had made that great confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In verse 22, we read, he came and he took Jesus aside. The Greek literally means he took him by the hand, as it were. And he says, come with me. He is coming alongside Jesus as a friend, as one whom he loved most dear. He had become a passionate follower of Jesus, and now his life was intertwined with Jesus. It was bound up with Jesus, and the thoughts of the welfare of Jesus filled his heart. Peter is not here an enemy. He's not a selfish, complacent person. He is a friend of Jesus. Concerned for his welfare and as a friend, he could not bear the thought of Jesus suffering and dying. He could not bear the thought of the pain and anguish which Jesus had just been speaking of of how he must go to Jerusalem and there he must suffer and there he must die. So he takes Jesus, his friend, aside and he suggests to him another way, a way that led away from the cross, a way that would speak of ease and comfort, a life, not fought with anguish and pain, a life in which there would be no cross. And I think that deep down, there is in all of us this desire to strive for a life that is free from the cross. Let us be honest, brothers and sisters. Which of us wants that cross? Which of us would willingly embrace that cross? Which of us would knowingly allow our hands to be placed upon wood and nails hammered into them and into our feet and to know the spear entering into our side? Which of us would want such physical pain? And if not physical... What of the spiritual, what of the anguish that goes with being a Christian, with being a follower, with being a disciple. And just as Jesus wanted, just as Peter wanted Jesus, just as he thought of him as his friend, and he wanted him not to take the pathway of the cross. So there is with all of us within our lives. We want Jesus. We want him as our friend. We want him as our companion. We want that Jesus as the lover of our souls. We want him. To his bosom we would fly. But deep down, we do not want the cross that goes with it. We want a Jesus without his cross. And that is the first obstacle we face when we consider surrendering ourselves to God because we cannot have Jesus without having his cross. The two go together. We cannot be a disciple without experiencing a life of difficulty and pain. But secondly there's another obstacle. And that is the desire to strive for honor and acceptance. It's there built within all of us. Peter had confessed Jesus as the Messiah. In effect, he was saying that the Messianic kingdom was about to come. And in Jewish eschatological thought, When the Messiah came, he would establish his reign, his Basilea in the Greek, which literally means his rule on earth. And there he would preside over humanity. And he would have alongside him his followers, in particular, the apostles. And so Peter is thinking of a messianic kingdom with Jesus as the king, and himself and the others, sharing in Jesus' rule, sharing in the honor, sharing in the glory, sharing in the privileges, sharing in the riches, sharing now on all life that was going to bestow upon them. They would be the privileged ones. They would be the worthy ones. They would be the ones who would be acknowledged. They wanted to share in that glory. And thus they wanted to be triumphant. They wanted that top spot to be top dog, if I could use language such as those. They did not want to be identified with a Jesus. A Jesus who would experience ridicule and shame. They wanted a crown, but without a cross. They were happy, you could say, that their sins would be forgiven. They would be happy that they would enter into heaven. They were happy that they would have blessed Jesus with them. But they didn't want all else that went with it. The shame, the dishonor, all that came with having Jesus. And here there is a dilemma within all of our hearts because we have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We identified with him and we came to him acknowledging him as the one who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again for our justification, and who will come again one day and take us home to be with himself. And so we want that forgiveness. We want that assurance of sins forgiven. We want that entrance into heaven. We want all that God can bestow upon us, his manifold blessings. We want to know that his good hand rests upon us. And we want honor and acceptance. We want a nice, respectable Christianity wherein God bestows his blessings and we be content as a people as they look up to us. But we don't want it to go any further. We do not want it to affect life. We don't want it to affect ambition. We don't want it to affect purpose. We don't want it to affect who we are and what we will ultimately be. And so we strive for honor and acceptance just as we strive for a life that is freed from the cross. But there's a third element here and it's in verse 26. For we strive so often to gain the world. Here Jesus speaks of gaining and losing of those who set their hearts and minds on this world to possess it. And yet they find they lose everything. Here is a real dilemma with the world. How on earth can we get the world out of us? It's a struggle because we live in the world. Now, in the Greek, the world is not just physical, tangible earth, things. It is also ideology and beliefs. It is principles, it's rulers. It is guiding thoughts. That's why I quoted on Friday Philip's translation of Romans 12. Don't let the world force you into its mold. In other words, don't let the world shape you don't let the world determine the kind of person it wants you to be. And here is attention. Because deep down, we want to be like that world outside. Because if we were to be radically different from it, what might be the effects? What might be the impact it might have on us? So deep down, we want the riches, we want the honors. We want the pleasures because the pull of the world is so great, it is so strong. For example, we all want a home and the security that it brings. Marriage and the comfort that it brings. We all want degrees of satisfaction (laughs) to have our deepest emotions and pleasures satisfied. These things, to a degree, are normal because God has made us full human beings. But how do we express those and yet at the same time say we surrender ourselves to God? I often look at adverts because adverts tell you and tell me where society is at. And it's a very interesting advert in England. You see it on tube stations and it's to do with insurance, it's an insurance company and it thinks of a circle and I want you to imagine a circle and the first uh, area of the circle because it's divided into sections is that of a baby. The baby has just entered the world. The next segment shows the baby, it's a boy and he is studying. The next segment shows him at college. <coughs> there he is working away on his books. The next segment shows him married, he has a little flat, he's got a banger of a car and he's got two children and you can see they're not very prosperous, they're struggling to make ends meet. The next segment shows him around about the age 40 odd. Here he is now prosperous. He lives uh, in front of a huge house, he's got three uh, children and you could see they're all well healed, and they've gone to a good school and he no longer has a, uh, an old banger, he's got a beautiful car, in fact there's not one, there's two of them. The next segment shows him now, he and his wife, they are old, they're elderly. And this would be the classic ambition for the average English couple back in England. You are there in your garden, you know, full of roses and all the flowers, and you're pottering away. The house behind you is a lovely cottage. You know, it's uh, with painted beams and with a thatched roof. And uh, The next segment shows a coffin. What do you think the next segment shows? Think about it. I wonder what you think the next segment would show. Remember, it's a circle, so we're back where we started, with a baby, repeating that whole process. Now to a degree, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure all of us would want to go through such a cycle, but what's missing from it? I tell you what's missing, and I'm sure you know, the inner core, there is no Christ. It's lived only for the purpose of self, self-movement, self-gain, self-propagation, fulfilling one's ambitions, fulfilling one's desires and one's pleasures, only to have the next generation repeat exactly the same process all over again. And here is the tension for us, that world outside, with its own standards, its own positions, its own ambitions, its own honours, how it defines itself. And so we allow it to define us. And now we begin to reflect that world. And here comes the real, real tension. What do we do with that circle? What do we do with our responsibilities our families, our children, our parents. How do we satisfy those pleasures that are deep within us? We all have our financial burdens. We have the mortgages. We have the doctor's expenses. We have the children that we must put through school. Parents that we must look after when they grow old. There are so many difficulties that come our way and we have to balance them all. And we end up By striving to gain the world. Because that seems to be the only real answer. Yes we have Jesus. But we must have the world also. We want both the crown of glory. And somehow Jesus and his cross. And somehow we believe that both of them. Will hold and hang together. So here then. Are three obstacles to submission and I wonder what they say to us what they say to you what they say to me because we're all involved in some way or the other we cannot just walk away we're going to be honest brutally honest then we have to consider the obstacles in our lives the obstacles that lead us not to submit, not to surrender. But let us move on. I want us to look next at the rewards of surrendering one's life. Now you may well say, you've been preaching a rather grim sermon. It all seems rather miserable. But is there anything to be gained by surrendering? Jesus speaks of this right at the end of the chapter in verses 27 and 28. He speaks of him coming again and what happens when he comes again. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus will come again in his glory, and he will reward each one according to what he or she would have done. The Son of Man, here this Jesus on earth, walking with his disciples, is the same one <coughs> one day is going to come again with all his angels and he will wrap up this world. Yes, the death and the mayhem, the conflict, the disease, the famine, the drought, the catastrophes, all of these things will occur. But there is a Jesus who stands above it all and one day will bring this earth to its culmination. For he, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who brought all things into being, fills all things, will one day wrap it all up. And you and I embrace not just a Jesus who died on the cross, but one who rose again from the dead, and one day who will come again in his glory. And every eye will see him, and everyone will acknowledge him, And he will be king and Lord. And before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then there will be the great judgment. And here is Jesus the judge, the one who will look upon those who did not know him. And he will cast them into the fiery furnace, there to be cut off from the Father's love for all eternity. And then his attention will be turned to his own people. And he will judge them with a righteous judgment. And he will recompense them according to what they have done. And so every action and every thought, every motive and every intention will ultimately be judged and will ultimately be rewarded. For you and I live now before God. We live before his presence. We live in his hands. We carry the marks of him upon us. We cannot be removed from him. We cannot be sidelined and he cannot be sidelined. We are part and parcel of him, and one day he will judge us accordingly, each of us separately, knowingly, for he alone is the all-knowing and the all-seeing God. And when he judge, he will judge with righteousness and with justice but not only does he come as our judge. There's another aspect which I find deeply frightening and I say that even as I look at this passage. In the parallel passage in Mark chapter eight and verse 38 where we read of his second coming, this is what we read. If anyone is ashamed of me, And my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. And I don't know how to cope with that. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how to cope with that because I look at my own life and I look at times when I've been ashamed of him, when I should have spoken up for him and I did not. I chose silence. When I should have done that bit of good and I did not for selfish reasons. When I should have portrayed the glory of the matchless Lord but my own sinfulness got in the way. And deep down, I was ashamed of my blessed Lord. Tell me now, which of us has never been ashamed of him? Be honest. At work, at college, I had faced this the first day at work. I remember I was in civil engineering in a firm of piling contractors, and I always used to take a copy of the Bible with me everywhere I went. First day at work I arrived, the chief estimator, you had to enter the office, rows and rows of uh, uh, drawing boards and there was the chief estimator, our boss at the front. He called me to see him and I thought he would welcome me as the latest member of the team in front of everyone. And he looked at me And these were his words, he says, that book you just bought in, either that book goes or you go. That were his first words to me, my first day at work in a civil engineering office. And I couldn't understand it, I was very upset, I couldn't show it, so I called to my desk and just hid behind it. And then I discovered why at the end of the week. We all had to go on site visits and you had to sit there and you had to measure. I was working on vibro-driven piles and you had to keep measuring them. And at the end of the week, I gave in my expense claims form. I then discovered mine was half that of everybody else. They were all on the fiddle. In the building industry, it is common in England. And I had a decision to make, just as I had to make that decision my first day at work would I get rid of my Bible or would I keep it there on my desk? So at the end of the week, would I continue to submit accurate expense claims forms or would I double them just so that everyone in the office accepted me? See, the issue of choice affects all of us. If I had gotten rid of my Bible, it would have meant I was ashamed of Jesus. If I had inflated my expenses, I would have been denying Jesus. Better for me to lose my job than for me to betray my Lord. And that is what it comes down to. Just as when I became a Christian the very, very first night, I went home and told my mother. And my mother broke down and with tears she said to me, Son, you must make the choice now. If you choose to continue to be a follower of Jesus, you cannot be a part of this family. If you choose to reject Jesus, you remain a part of this family. I looked at my mother and said, how can I reject him who loved me? He has saved me. And within a short while, I was on the street of London, living as a tramp. You see, we all have to choose And we have to choose again and again and again. And if you and I are ashamed of Jesus, then one day he will be ashamed of us. Now think on that. But there's a third element. He will reward us according to our character According to our faithfulness, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will reward us. What's the basis of that reward? It is who we are. It is our inner nature. It is our our character. And that is the sum totality of our ambitions, our emotions, our desires, every passion and every feeling. And he, the great judge, who again is able to discern our thoughts and discern our hearts and able to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad, he will reward us according to that character. And that character will ultimately be based on faithfulness. Are we truly faithful? him. But thirdly and finally, we come to the end. What are we to surrender? You now say to me, well, you've surveyed some of the obstacles. You've shown us what the rewards are going to be at the end of it, that we are going to be with Jesus in his glory. We're going to have his crowns, and it's all based on faithfulness. Well, what exactly do we surrender in order to obtain from our Lord Those rewards. (laughs) I would suggest that firstly, we are to surrender our wills. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him surrender. In other words, give up, accept defeat. That's what surrender literally means. It means handing over all your rights to someone else. And that is an act of the will. For my sins these days I spend some time with the military. I have to go on various exercises and I'm there in the Joint Forces Headquarters and you learn a lot about military life. I'm very fortunate I'm a civilian and a civilian I can observe. I was on an exercise last year which went very badly wrong and there were the top generals and there were uh, although you could say the colonels and others. And the general wasn't a nice fellow. He was a ghastly character. And he ridiculed his officers. He made life absolutely miserable. But you know what? They all obeyed him. There was no talk of mutiny, of dissension. They had signed away their lives. And if they didn't, And if they tried to buck the system, then they'd be in the brig. You were there to obey absolutely because you had surrendered your will to the British government. And I got to thinking, if that is what is involved in the military, a physical army, what about the Lord's army? What about you and me? and handing over our wills, whatever the cost. I think of a boy age 12 in Indonesia in the conflict when the Muslims attacked. It was a a camp and the Muslims lined up all the children in the camp and they came to the first boy age 12 and they said to him, are you a Christian? And he looked at them and said, I'm a soldier of Christ. So they said to him, stretch out your hand. He did, and they chopped it off. And they looked at him and said, are you a Christian? He says, I am a soldier of Christ. He stretched out the other hand, and they chopped that off. At the age of 12, this boy exercised his will. And that will was to surrender his life, to Christ and he could not deny him. I say this, you and I have a will. You may say you are committed but your commitment you can take back but your surrendering you can't. You give up all rights to yourself. Why? Because you are no longer your own. Because Christ who saved you bought you for himself. You are no longer your own boss. Secondly, We embrace the cross. We surrender our status. Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross. From now on, you live with that cross before you. You embrace that cross, blow respectability, blow the status of the world and what they expect of you. All you have as your guiding light is the cross, and that is your passion. Thirdly, you now live for him and follow him. Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. In other words, to walk in his footsteps, to do his will, to be like him. Surrendering. We come now to the end, virtually, of this our missions week. It was the end of my sermon. But I have this thought, as I have it for myself, as I was praying over the sermon this morning and just thinking about what I would say, what does it mean for me? What does this mean for you, our possessions? I want you to think about it. I surrender all. Have you surrendered all your possessions? Everything, every bit of it? Your ambitions, your studies, your future? Have you surrendered your future to the Lord? Your families? Have you given your families to the Lord? maybe a father, maybe a mother, maybe your children, whatever it is that is keeping you back. Have you handed that over? Some of you will say, yes, I have, but this is what my mother says, or this is what auntie says. I'm sorry, then you haven't. You can't live hopping around from one foot to the other, to use Elijah's words. You've got to choose. And if you choose truly to surrender, Then you walk out of this place, you could say a freer person, a happier person. Oh yes, you're going to have difficulties out there, but you will have chosen ultimately that it is Christ. Savior, tis a full surrender, all I leave to follow thee, thou my leader and defender from this hour shalt ever be. I ask you, is that what you want this morning? Let's go on. As I come in deep contrition, at this consecrated hour, hear, O Christ, my heart's petition. Let me feel the Spirit's power. Is that what you want? To know his power? Then let's go on. No withholding full confession. Pleasures, riches, all must flee. Holy Spirit, take possession. I no more, but thou in me. Is that what it is? Be this my song and story, now until life is o'er. This my rapture, this my glory, till I reach the shining shore, is that what it is? Oh, the joy of full salvation. Oh, the peace of love divine. Oh, the bliss of consecration. I am His, and He is mine. If that is what you're saying, then I want you to say with me, I surrender all. I surrender all. All I have, I bring to Jesus. I surrender all. Let's bow our heads. Let's forget about everybody else in this room. There's only the Lord and there's only you. Let's think on those words. If you really mean it, then say with me the words, I surrender all, I surrender all, I surrender all, all I have, I bring to Jesus, I surrender all. I wonder if we can quietly sing this, if we know this song. (laughs) It's 496. I want us still to be in an attitude of prayer, and I want us to sing. And if we really mean what we are singing, then let it come from our heart. 496. daily there is much that we cannot keep but which we can relinquish into your hands and we know too Lord of that which we gain that which is eternal and everlasting we thank you for that O blessed master we come now before you and again we surrender ourselves to you bodies souls and spirits our hearts our lives Our families, our possessions, our hopes, our aspirations and ambitions, our present and our future, all we give to you, all we place into your blessed hands. Lord, we come as your people to give ourselves afresh to you and to pray, O Lord, that you would come and that you would bless us that you would visit us by your Spirit, that you would fill us with your power, that you would grant to us your peace, and that you would keep us for all eternity. Oh, Lord, we give ourselves afresh to you because we give ourselves to one who loved us and who gave himself for us, the one who sacrificed himself for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We love Jesus because he loves us and continues to love us despite who we are and what we are. So, oh, blessed master, take us afresh. We come to you. Use us for your glory. Thank you for calling us to be co-laborers with you in the building of your church. Yes, Lord. Use us, Father, both here in Bahamas and throughout this world for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.